This is WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming online at www.wvew.org. And you're listening to Indigo Radio, Deepening Understanding, Making Connections. On the air every Sunday at noon, we are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram, SoundCloud, and iTunes. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not of the radio station. And this is Anna Milani. I am a local educator, and I also am a grad student at UMass Amherst studying public health. And we also have Hector Figuerella in the studio. He's our guest co-host today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And last week our show was on supervised injection sites, harm reduction, and understanding the social determinants of addiction. You can find that show on uh, SoundCloud and our podcast on iTunes. And today we're going to continue our discussion and learning around addiction. And we're focusing on women and the particular barriers and stigmatization they face, especially pregnant women and mothers. I am going to be airing an interview I did with Dr. Alice Fidian Green uh, just a couple of weeks ago. She's a, a friend of mine, also uh, just finished up her doctoral work at UMass Amherst in Public Health Department. And her recent work has been around opiate use and addiction with pregnant women and mothers, especially around the Western Mass area. So we're going to get to that interview. We're going to start with an Aretha Franklin song, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water, and we will be back.
is Aretha Franklin, Bridge Over Troubled Water, and you're listening to Indigo Radio. And today we are talking about women and addiction, and we're going to be playing an interview with Dr. Alice Vidian Green. And I'm going to go right to that interview, uh, the first part. Indigo Radio. And we just want to start with having you tell us about some of the research that you've been doing uh, during your work at UMass Amherst. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And yeah, so most of my research has been focused on health equity and reproductive health and justice. So that in recent years has primarily centered around substance use and mental health and kind of the intersections between substance use and mental health and violence and for women and pregnant women and mothers and specifically. I would love if you could give us a definition that has come from your own research and reading of what addiction is and what it is to you as someone working in public health. Well, I've thought about that question quite a bit, and I think that it's, I could probably spend 45 minutes talking about that definition in and of itself, but the biggest piece is that the generally accepted definition of addiction now is that it's a chronic condition um, of which relapse is part. And so there's sort of larger entities, National Institutes for Drug Abuse, that's NIDA, SAMHSA is a Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And they talk, those organizations talk about um, substance use as a brain disorder um, and that the repeated use of a substance can alter brain circuitry and so impact the um, sort of craving and, and reward and desire and reward um, impulses. And so there's, <clears throat> if someone is defined um, as having a substance use disorder, there's sort of a checklist of things that people have to have on that, uh, have to have or have to have be expressing. Um, and so some of that is physiological. So that's really around craving and um, symptoms of withdrawal and things like that. Um, but then there's also this idea that there's um, a repeated and consistent use of substances um, in spite of negative consequences. So that could be biological, so something like multiple overdoses or sepsis, or that's really on the sort of far end of side of the spectrum, or um, also, also negative consequences around social relationships. So that could be um, impaired you know, relations with children or friends or siblings or parents, um, perhaps inability to hold down a job because of substance use or um, eviction because of substance use. So th things like that. So it really has to be something that gets in in the way of of living in that way. And this is most commonly known as the biomedical model, right? Around it's addiction. Really, I mean, that's what I'm referring to it as, but it's really what it's referred to in the biomedical systems would be the chronic disease okay. model of Got addiction. It. Okay. Um, and so that's a really important transition because historically there was this moral model of addiction. So really defining addiction more as a moral failing or part of personal weakness. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is incorrect. And so the chronic disease model of addiction is really important in shifting the conversation around that. There are some critiques of that model of addiction because there's often not a discussion of structural factors. Um, so 
uh, the first thing that pops to to, into my head is access to housing, for mm -hmm. example, um, access to employment and a livable wage. And so a lot of those factors are not part of that model and don't get discussed in terms of risk factors and ways that we can address and support people with substance use disorders. Yeah, and I think that's where I get caught up with it because there are people that have that use substances regularly mm -hmm. that are still able to function, yeah. go to jobs, yeah. uh, take care of their family. Yeah. And so what is yeah, the difference between those people yeah. and then people that are not able to yeah. and just want to have a brain disease and want not? Right. I think that's where I get yeah, and it's, around that. It's complicated, language. and I will give the disclaimer that I'm not a physician, I'm not a neuroscientist, um, but I already think that the sort of terminology of a brain disorder is really problematic and stigmatizing. And so I remember being in a presentation at a high school, and someone was talking about substance use as a um, addiction as a brain disorder, and I thought, hmm. If I was a substance user, or if I was a child of a substance user in that sitting in that room, would I be willing to seek out help? Or would I feel um, embarrassed by all of a sudden having this disorder? And so the, the language, I think, is is tricky. Um, and I do think that you can talk to people. And there's I've heard some people refer to it as sort of a chaotic or non-chaotic substance use. So there are some people. And it's, um, you know, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a neuroscientist. But there are people that use in a non-chaotic way, mm -hmm. like you defined. Yeah, um, that's an interesting way to put it, too. Yeah. I haven't heard that. Yeah, and the chaotic, you know, that would refer to chaos in terms of losing housing yeah. or, you know, fragmented relationships and things like that. But I think, you know, one of the biggest pieces, too, around risk factors for substance use disorder is people with the most chronic and persistent challenges with substance use disorders are very likely to have some type of co-occurring mental health condition that is potentially not treated mm -hmm. um, or potentially they're self-treating with substances because they maybe don't have the right medication or what have you. There's a whole complex um, system of factors. So things like it could be someone that has bipolar disorder or to someone who has PTSD or anxiety or depression. And so oftentimes people that have the intersection of some type of untreated mental health condition with a substance use disorder, um, those are often people that have, um, it's more challenging to treat the um, substance use disorder. But also, with most mental health conditions, you can look, I mean, sorry, most, most health conditions, you can look at the data and think, okay, where is this concentrated? And primarily, that's going to be in populations that don't have access to housing, don't have access to a livable wage, and income and sort of these basic social factors that really everyone needs to live a healthy life. Yeah. And so there's there's definitely some of these larger structural factors, right. one of which is access to treatment Yeah. also. Yeah. That was Alice, Dr. Alice Fidian-Green that you're listening to. And if you're just joining us, this is Indigo Radio on the air every Sunday at noon. Today we're airing part two of a discussion around addiction, substance use. Uh, today we're really focusing on women and the particular suffering of women. And that was part one that you were listening to. We're going to go to a song and we will be back with part two. We're going to go to the Velvet Underground a song named Heroin.
Welcome back. You're listening to WBEW, Brattleboro Community Radio, and this is Indigo Radio on the air every Sundays at noon. This is Anna, and I'm in the studio with Hector. Thank you for being here as my co-host. And again, we're talking about addiction and substance use uh, and women today. We're airing an interview with Dr. Alice Vidian Green. She just finished up her doctoral work at UMass Amherst in public health. And her recent work has been around opiate use and addiction with pregnant women and mothers. So we're going to go to part two of her interview, and we'll be back after that. Actually, I want to go into that, so talking about the structural factors, because one of the things that you, you talk about how, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, mm-hmm. trauma is what they call an almost universal experiences, mm-hmm. experience yeah. of those with substance use disorder. And I think about this because as someone who has worked in the schools, there's, off, there's increasingly this language around trauma-informed mm-hmm. teaching or trauma-informed practice. Mm-hmm. And this is very often, or usually, very individualized. Mm-hmm. And this is not saying that people as individuals don't experience trauma. And, and what they're often referring to is you've maybe in your history had physical abuse or sexual abuse, you've been in the foster care system, maybe you had a parent in jail, there's kind of different things that would cause someone to experience trauma. And I feel like a missing piece of that is this institutional violence or the social factors that 
don't help explain maybe why that has happened. Mm -hmm. And so I would love for you to talk about that because you in your writing have expanded that, that trauma also needs to be understood on an institutional level. Can mm -hmm. we talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah, and so I think um, you're right that often people with substance use disorders have um, some history of trauma, and as you said, that's mostly conceptualized as an interpersonal thing, so exposure to some type of violence in, in childhood. Um, and for, for women, primarily, that is sexual or emotional, and for men, that's primarily physical. But then there's this huge piece, which is why why perhaps is there this exposure to violence in the first place? And some of that um, can be related to um, economic insecurity and the stress that's associated with that. I mean, there's all of these, there's all of these larger structural pieces that are really important to think about. And we do, in public health, we talk about the social determinants of health. So there's often um, efforts to increase access to transportation and education and health care, but again, there's not this recognition or there's not an um, acknowledgement of some of these larger structural factors like economic insecurity. I mean, I think that is probably one of the biggest pieces of that's mm -hmm. linked to so many other um, life stressors that mm -hmm. make things really challenging. Um, but then th the thing about institutional violence, so that's really referring to violence within um, systems. And, and typically that's you know, in the context of the research that I've done, which is around substance use and mental health co-occurring conditions with pregnant women and mothers, that's either the, you know, healthcare system, that's the social service system or the legal system, because most women with substance use disorders that aren't getting treated, that are, well, and are getting treated, are circulating through one, if not all, of those systems. Um, and I think oftentimes we just sort of assume a lot of those policies and procedures to be... Um, just business as usual or evidence-based practice, but we don't often look at some of the harms created by some of those policies. Um, so you talked, for example, around um, you, uh, in one of your examples of an adverse childhood experience or trauma, you talked about having um, your parent incarcerated or being in foster care. And we may conceive of trauma as separation from a parent, but we don't really think about um, how the system of child and, and parental separation can impact, um, you know, multi-generations of a family. We don't think about the impact of separation of a mother from her child, um, the loss of custody. We often don't talk about that. And those things are absolutely related to someone's substance use patterns. Um, loss of Women that have lost custody are quite likely to relapse, mm -hmm. um, feel really depressed and sad, of course, understandably. Um, and so what, what would that look like if instead of just removing a child from an environment that, that absolutely can at times be unsafe, what would happen if we wrapped services around that family mm -hmm. instead and supported their, you know, their cohesion and you know, promoted their health collectively. So I don't think we do that as much. On that point, I actually want to bring up something that I think is really important in this paper that you wrote about the gendered triple standard, which we're going to get to in a little bit about what you mean by that. But just on the note of talking about children separated, you bring up this point around um, what is all over the news today around the detention centers and the deplorable conditions in children separated. Mm -hmm what's happening with migrants on the border. Yeah. And in your paper, I'm just going to quote, so you talk about 
how what you're making is a connection between that and then also what you just talked about with the foster care system and mothers separated from their children. Mm-hmm. You talk about, so you're quoting here the uh, American Public Health Association that came out with a public statement that was opposing these inhumane conditions on the border. So I'm just going to read this statement. It says, as public health professionals, we know that children living without their parents face immediate and long-term health consequences. Risks include the acute mental trauma of separation, and in the case of breastfeeding children, the significant loss of maternal-child bonding essential for normal development. Parents' health would also be affected by this unjust separation. Furthermore, this practice places children at heightened risk of experiencing adverse childhood events and trauma, which research has definitively linked to some of society's most intractable health issues, alcoholism, substance misuse, depression, suicide. So that's the American Public Health Association that you're quoting. And then what you say, and here I'm quoting you, is... You say, of course, what is striking is that this exact statement could be made about the separation of children and families that occurs on a routine basis in the U.S. via the intertwined institutions that manage prenatal and maternal OUD, which is opiate use disorder, right? Mm -hmm. And you continued with much of the public health literature fails to conceive of family separation as a form of violence and trauma. So I would love for you to talk about the importance of drawing these connections and how, as people in the public health field, we can better support women that are struggling with opioid use disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I think one of the challenges in public health, health is that often we focus on individual behaviors. Um, and of course, that's important. Um, it's important for people to eat well and exercise and do all of these things that we know are beneficial for our health. But I think also when we focus on just individual behaviors, it can be really easy to then um, stigmatize or blame or judge populations um, for their choices. Or um, And so I think it's um, less comfortable for us to look at some of the practices that are just standard within our society. And so I think why what really struck me about this um, statement from the American Public Health Association was that it's almost like there's a lack of recognition that we we separate children and families all the time, um, either through the criminal justice system, um, through the over-incarceration of um, women and men of color, um, or through the um, you know foster care system. Um, and it's not to say that sometimes parents are not able in the moment to parent a child, perhaps. And I've never worked in that job, and I know it's extremely difficult um, and making those decisions, I think, are really hard for the people um, working in those jobs. But also, you know, we just don't even consider that those practices are harmful. And in part, it's possibly uncomfortable because sometimes people working in those systems feel like they're doing work that is supporting families and supporting women and supporting children. Um, And so we don't want to, I'm speaking sort of collectively using the word we, but often don't want to think that the work we're doing is harming people when we feel like we're in a helping profession. Mm -hmm. Um, But also that would require really interrogating a lot of our standard systems and policies um, and making some changes. And I think that does take some time and work, but it's really important. And I just think it's fascinating that it's really easy for the APHA, American Public Health Association, to sort of condemn 
that practice and then not be able to look at some of the practices that we already have in place mm -hmm. um, that we've had in place for multiple years so um, I do think there's some increased attention to that uh, dichotomy but I think that it's really important to not just think about health as individual um, and also not just think about mothers or children but think about um, families collectively mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of work I think that needs to be done but I think if we if we view health as a larger sort of systemic thing um, I think that we're probably going to think more creatively about solutions that can support people more sustainably right because I think that's a that's the thing I see too again back to this sort of trauma-informed when we it's when it's all the focus on the individual although again not diminishing that individuals have individual trauma that you know, often they're very horrific at times, but if it's just about like fixing the individual, mm -hmm. we're not looking at the societal brokenness that also needs to be fixed or looking at changing how our society is organized. Right, and I think one of the challenges right now, well, sort of benefits and challenges, I think it's always important to see that there's two sides of almost everything. But so for example, just a, an individual behavioral model um, in the context of if we're talking about opioid use disorder and we're talking about heroin and fentanyl, the great thing is that we have medication-assisted treatment or we have medications to treat opioid use disorder, so things like methadone or buprenorphine or naltrexone, and those are wonderful options for many people that are exceedingly important to support and we need insurance to support them in a more long-term manner. But it also means that for people that struggle with polysubstance use disorders or people that maybe dabble in opioids, but also maybe their primary substance is alcohol or um, cocaine. We don't have medications. Well, we have some medication for alcohol, but not for cocaine. And so how do we think a little bit more broadly about some of the prevention? Um, because we do have medication for some classes of drugs, but not all classes of, of drugs. And so I think if we want to think about prevention, we need to go back a little bit um, and I think an individual model, um, under an individual model, we mostly think about access to treatment and medication, um, which again is exceedingly important. Um, but I think at the same time, it's also important to back up and think about, okay, prevention on a larger scale so that, for example, if there's a um, uptick in cocaine use or methamphetamine use, which we're seeing across the United States, we actually have some systems in place to help support those people. Um, because we don't have medications for either of those substances at the moment. Mm -hmm. That was Alice, Dr. Alice Fidian Green that you're listening to, and she is talking about substance abuse and particularly the um, systems that also oppress, further oppress women. And we're going to go to a song break. We're going to listen to Amy Winehouse, Wake Up Alone. It's okay in a day I'm staying busy Tied up enough so I don't have to wonder where is he Got so sick of crying So just lately 
Wake Up Alone, and you're listening to WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7, your community radio station, and this is Indigo Radio on the air every Sundays at noon. I'm Anna, and Amy Winehouse, of course, died way too early. She was 27 at the age of her death. She died from alcohol poisoning, and she had long struggled with addiction. We are airing part two of a two-part series on addiction, the social determinants of addiction. Last week we did a show on supervised injection sites that you can listen to on our podcast. And today we've been airing an interview with Dr. Alice Vidian Green, who just finished up her doctoral work at UMass Amherst in public health. So we're going to go back to the interview, part three, with Alice. So I want to go back a little bit to hone in on your work around women Mm -hmm. and one of the things I thought was interesting that you point out is around a woman's relationship with a physician Mm -hmm. and that often we would think that this would be an ideal situation where a woman is pregnant and she's struggling with using substances that regular checkups with the doctor could be helpful but you say that sometimes they're 
quite punitive. And if you could talk about the systems around that that actually, again, har- and you've talked about this before, but harm the woman, the mm-hmm. woman that is using that don't actually help her get healthier through her pregnancy. Yeah, well, I think ultimately the largest challenge is that although addiction is defined as a chronic condition of which relapse is standard for many people, it's not not a given, but um, definitely a standard. If we define addiction as a chronic illness of which relapse is part of that, um, the systems that manage substance use and particularly around, around women and children and families, those systems are pretty unforgiving of relapse. Um, And so that remains a challenge. Um, And so that means if I am in treatment, um, I'm going to have, I'm gonna maintain custody of my child. But if I relapse, um, it's very likely that I may face punitive consequences and lose custody of my child. That is a, it's a little bit of a disconnect And I think that there's a huge amount of fear around systems and institutions um, among women in particular, either in pregnancy because they're highly stigmatized, um, and some women are not treated well when they're pregnant and they're actively using substances, and because of fear, often avoid institutions until the 11th hour, and so it just sort of compounds this, you know, unpleasant experience. Um, And so I think that, you know, I, I think that there is absolutely a lot of variation. There's some healthcare centers, there's some providers that provide excellent care um, for people with substance use disorders. And so I don't want to make a blanket statement that every single person that goes into the hospital or into the um, social service systems or into the legal system um, are going to be treated terribly. But regardless, there's a lot of stories out there of people that have had bad experiences, and that drives a lot of fear. Right. able to avoid institutions. And so most pregnant women will enter treatment in their final trimester of pregnancy. Um, and a large part of that is perhaps they don't realize they're pregnant, but a lot of it is fear because they don't know what to expect and they've heard you know, stories about people losing custody and right. they don't want to do that. Um, and again, sort of going back to this idea of institutional violence, at least in the project that I worked with, every single person that I talked to had had experience as a child in the foster care system. Um, So either they were, as a child, separated for short-term or long-term from their parents. And so they have a a very real fear of those institutions because because they've experienced being separated from parents or from being removed from their home. So that is not just based out of, you know, the air. Exactly. It's grounded in a a real fear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, also, I've seen within my own work, working uh, at the Women's Freedom Center in Brattleboro, which is the domestic and sexual violence organization, that there are so many punitive measures around even missing an appointment, mm-hmm. and that there are real reasons why a woman might miss an appointment, for, like if she doesn't have transportation or if she yeah. doesn't have childcare, yeah. and that those things can then set her back. And it also makes me think about, we recently did a show on rural birthing clinics, that there's one that just closed up in Springfield. And this is going to disproportionately affect poor women. Mm -hmm. So thinking about all the different things that someone may not be able to get the care they receive or be afraid to be able to, you know, if they miss an appointment, they're getting sanctioned. And I feel like I know I read some of your stories of the interviews that you did with women, and I'm not remembering it, but there was one where 
some woman had something like 15 appointments in one day. And it was, there's just no way that how is anyone supposed to make all those appointments? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the examples I was thinking of is a woman who was describing, um, I don't have it in front of me, but describing, you know, walking to one bus stop to take a bus. I mean, I think she spent multiple hours traveling. Um, I think she walked maybe 20 miles in a day between catching buses or trying to get to appointments on time. Um, Because if you miss an appointment, then you're often potentially marked as being, uh, what's the word, non-compliant. And so that's sort of a a mark on your record. Um, And so, yeah, I I would say transportation is one of the hugest Mm. barriers to people accessing treatment. Um, particularly in in rural areas, but yeah. also childcare, um, and just that it's it's a lot of work. Like mm-hmm. how how what about if you have other kids at home, mm-hmm. or you have to pick kids up from school, or you have to wait for the bus, or the weather's crummy and the bus is slow, or right. your car breaks down, or I mean, there's a lot of challenges. And for some people, they may have a let's say if they're in a treatment program, they may have a treatment program near them. Um, but I've heard some people say, well, I don't want to go to the one near me because I feel really judged or I don't like it or it doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't give you options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I, as a person with a car can do that. If I have a physician that I don't really like, I can get in my car and I can drive to an appointment in a different town and that's fine. I don't have to think about the, the bus schedule. And for people mm-hmm. that are on federally funded health insurance, a lot of organizations have a three strikes and you're out policy. Um, and so if you have three yeah. no-shows, then you get kicked out of the practice. And so, and I, I, you know, I can't speak to all practices, but that is, that's a challenge because if you yeah. have a mental health condition, let's say depression, there could be other underlying reasons that you're not going to your appointment and right. getting up on time. Yeah. Um, and so it's, we don't always think about those pieces. Right. And I feel like what the go-to is, and I think this is also what you're getting at, is that then mothers are seen as bad mothers. Mm-hmm. When you're put on, they're struggling with a addiction or they don't make an appointment because the transport people don't see that kind of stuff they're like oh they're just terrible mothers and I feel like that's part of that mindset that I definitely see from people working in these systems and again maybe not intentionally Mm -hmm. but the the policies are often so punitive that that's really what they're saying yeah and that actually leads me to what you call the gender triple standard. So can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Well, I think there's a reference to this sort of gendered double standard around um, substance use and substance use treatment in that women experience a greater level of stigma as compared to men. And some of that is just based on the fact that most of our most research until very recently around substance use has been conducted with men. Mm. And not as much has been conducted with women until maybe the last five or six years. And that women enroll in treatment programs at rates lower than men, so there's less availability of treatment um, for women. And so what I mean by a triple standard is that for women who are either pregnant or mothering, they face this additional layer of stigma um, based on their identity, which is, I don't think, hard to imagine. Um, And it just compounds the challenges that people face with Um, accessing treatment or maintaining treatment. Um, And then we can imagine that to be further compounded for people that are um, of low income or people of color or women of color. You can sort of see different different levels to that. And one thing I was thinking about when you were just talking about challenges with accessing treatment. So what about a woman who's 
temporary, temporarily lost custody of her child, and in order to regain custody, she's got to, you know, meet all of these expectations around appointments and um, job training and you know parenting classes and all the stuff. But because she doesn't have custody of her child, she doesn't necessarily get preferential access to treatment programs or housing versus if she was pregnant. Um, and so I think a lot That's of... That's such a great point. Yeah, I think a lot of our... A lot of our focus is on supporting pregnant women and women in the postpartum period, which is wonderful and extremely important. Um, and a lot of that centers around the child. Mm. Um, and so oftentimes the, the mother's needs get overlooked in that piece as well. And so there's all these different layers. Um, and we can even just look at the data a lot of the programs and money that supports programs for pregnant women and mothers are concentrated in the during pregnancy and within the first month postpartum, let's say. Um, and then a lot of those supports taper off afterwards and rates of overdose increase exponentially. Wow. Um, and that's speaking for Massachusetts because that's okay. the data that I know. But that, again, is not a stretch. There's mm -hmm. all this sort of concentrated support and there's people around you and there's people helping you navigate systems. Um, and then that sort of goes by the wayside. Mm -hmm. um, and so... That, what have you found is that rates of opiate use is it increasing for women or for a certain demographic of women? Definitely increasing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and rates of um, opioid-related overdoses are increasing for women. Prince, you're listening to Purple Rain. 
Hector and I wanted to play the whole song, but we're running out of time and we got to hear Alice. But Prince died April 2016, way too young. I think he was 57 when he died. And he died of a fentanyl-related overdose. Uh, and we were talking about fentanyl last week on our show around supervised injection sites. You're listening to Indigo Radio if you're just joining us. This is Anna, and we've been playing an interview I did with Dr. Alice Fidian Green about women and substance abuse. And we're going to go to the last part of that interview. The other thing I wanted to ask you before we sort of finish up here is I know that you've also done stuff around media portrayals mm-hmm. of opiate use. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm trying to figure out for myself is that there's a lot of talk around that opiate use became this white middle class problem. Mm-hmm. And when I look around in Brattleboro, mm-hmm. what I see on the streets is that it's, especially when thinking about overdoses, that from my observation is disproportionately affecting poor people. And you know, Brattleboro is predominantly white. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what you have found and what, if you could give us actually kind of a picture of if there is misinformation about that, what are actually the demographics, knowing, of course, like, there's different pockets and in different areas it's going to look differently, right? Yeah. yeah. What would you say to that? Well, I think the piece about media, I think, is really um, important and fascinating because that's often our, that's sort of our frame often in terms of helping us orient our beliefs around a certain issue. Um, And you're right that um, in the beginning stages of the opioid epidemic, it was prescription opioids, um, and that was predominantly middle-class white populations. Um, And I think what's interesting about that is that initially um, sort of our practice of uh, under-prescribing pain medications to populations of color um, because of assumptions that they are going to, racist assumptions that they're going to sell those medications and not use them, um, was almost protective in a weird way for people of color. And so we see that there was, yeah, this really liberal um, practice of prescribing opioids to people for pain. Um, and I think, I was just actually thinking about this because I read a study the other day, and I think that's two-part. I think that in public health, data is not real time. If we're looking at population level data, it has to be cleaned and it has to be, you know, be gone through and people have to get grant funding to do a research. So oftentimes, I just read an article that was talking about prescription opioids and the data set, I think, was up until like 2014. And the media continues to talk about prescription opioids. Um, a lot of the research talks about prescription opioids. I think this is really harmful because now we're, you know, we're in 2019. Most of the opioid-related fatalities are related to fentanyl and heroin. Um, and so with the illicit manufacturing of opioids, it just increases access to people across the board. Um, and so whereas it used to be a pretty standard narrative that people would access prescription opioid, we realized that there was, we collectively as a society realized, oh, there's a big problem here. And so limited access to prescription opioids are all these really um, great practices instituted in terms of prescription monitoring. But with that tightening of access to prescription opioids, there was a simultaneous drop in price and increase in availability of heroin. Um, And so it was pretty standard for people then to sort of start with prescription opioids 
um, become addicted and then shift to heroin. But that's really changing. A lot of people are either accessing prescription opioids illicitly or their, or their point of entry is accessing heroin um, or fentanyl. Fentanyl maybe not purposefully. It's often just added to um, lots of things, including cocaine. And so you even see overdoses that are people using cocaine, but it's laced with fentanyl. So um, I think the media, um, I think, is doing a, us a disservice by not just calling out the fact that the opioid crisis or epidemic, whatever you want to call it, it's really about heroin and fentanyl um, and carfentanil. And so that is number one. I don't remember your other and question. That, well, my question was around because that communities of color are mm-hmm. suffering from this. And yeah. my guess is still way more criminalized. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because of racism. Yeah, so and the long history of that. You circle back to that. So again, in terms of media coverage, um, it's predominantly depicted as a white person problem. Um, but the rates of opioid-related fatalities in communities of color have increased exponentially. Um, and actually, in Massachusetts, in the last, I think, starting in about 2017, rates of opioid-related fatalities in Latinx populations are almost identical to that among um, white populations. And we don't really talk about that. Um, Similarly, although not as much in Massachusetts, but in other um, places across the country, rates of opioid-related fatalities among African-American populations are also increasing exponentially. Um, And you're right, it still remains that people of color, women of color, mothers of color are more likely to be um, incarcerated and have uh, face punitive interventions, have their children um, removed from their custody. Um, even in talking to, um, I, I interviewed a few people that were recovery coaches, so it's like a peer support worker basically for people in, in recovery, and people would often comment that you might see a family, an African-American family who lives in Springfield, maybe the parent's primary substance of misuse is marijuana, and now that's super complicated at the moment because we have now legalized recreational access to cannabis. And so that is a whole can of worms that you could probably dedicate a whole show to. (laughs) But you see a family in that situation more likely to lose custody of a child versus um, a white family in, let's say, Agawam maybe more likely to be um, assigned a peer worker who's going to drive them to their appointments um, and get a home visitor. Um, And so we still see just locally um, a lot of disparities around access to care. And, you know, if you, I've spent time in, in treatment centers in Hamden County, um, and I've seen plenty of people of color, but in the in the long-term treatment programs, in the residential housing programs, where people really get um, concentrated care that's linked to more successful um, recovery and sustained recovery, most of the populations in those places are white. Mm-hmm. And just as we finish up here, I wanted to make sure if there's anything else that you want to add, knowing that you know, you're speaking out to a community that is really, I think, grappling with opiate use in the community and overdoses. And there was a public forum this summer in Brattleboro, and that I know when I look around that I'm really seeing a lot of people suffering. Do you have any last thoughts for maybe what people need or what communities can do? Um, I think that's a really big question. I think that people are talking about it is really great. Um, I think that we probably need more resources for parents and family members on how to talk about, just how to talk about it. 
Um, I also really think that we have to remember that although there's access to treatment, less than 20% of people with opioid use disorders actually access treatment. Um, but that's most of the focus of our conversation is around treatment. So I think that the, you know, if we can increase efforts to really integrate people who are active substance users into the conversation, I think that's exceedingly important because again, that's like 80% of people that are using substances are not in treatment. Um, and so I think it's really that's important a huge number. to, that's a huge number, that's the bulk of people. Um, and so I think that we, um, in terms of equity, want to make sure that those people are part of the conversations. I also think that talking to people that go through systems of care um, or through the legal system or through the social service system, I think getting people's feedback on their experiences of those systems um, and really hearing from the population that's most impacted by, directly impacted by substance use disorders about ways to improve systems of care or improve systems of support, I think is really essential. Okay, great. Okay, that was uh, Dr. Alice Fidian-Green that you were listening to, and she, again, just finished up her doctoral work at UMass Amherst in the Public Health Department. She had a particular focus on women, opiate use, and uh, pregnant women, mothering, and we want to thank her for spending the hour with us. And also send her a huge congratulations on finishing up at UMass with her doctoral degree. And we wish her luck and look forward to seeing what she's going to do with this work. And the other thing I just really quick want to say is that we have an event coming up with the Spark Teacher Training Institute on Monday, August 12th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Brooks Memorial Library in the community room. There is going to be a viewing of the World in Claire's Classroom. It's a film that documents the life in the elementary school classroom of Westminster. That is open to everyone. The new Spark teachers in training will be there. Faculty will be there. And it's kid-friendly. There's going to be a bit of food, so you're all welcome to that. We're going to close out the show with a song. Again, you're listening to Indigo Radio on the air every Sunday. And this was a two-part series on addiction. You can find both of those on our podcast, uh, also Facebook and uh, and Instagram for more information. We're going to go out with Tupac. Keep your head up. Say the black of the belly, the sweet of the juice. I say the dark of the flesh and the deep of the roots. I give a holler to my sister's own welfare. Tupac kids, if don't nobody else care. And uh, I know they like to beat you down a lot. When you come around the block, brothers clown a lot. But please don't cry, dry your eyes, never let up. Forgive, but don't forget, girl, keep your head up. And when he tells you you ain't nothing, don't believe him. And if you can't learn to love you, you should leave him. Cause sister, you don't need And I ain't trying to gas you up I just call them how I see You know what makes me unhappy that When brothers make babies And leave a young mother to be a cat And since we all came from a woman Got our name from a woman And I came from a woman I wonder why we take from my women Why we rape our women Do we hate our women I think it's time to kill for our women Time to heal our women Be real to our women and if we don't, we'll have a race of babies that will hate the ladies that make the babies. And since a man can't make one, 
He has no right to tell a woman when and where to create one. So will the real men get up? I know you're fed up, ladies. But keep your head up. Survive, cause it's a setup. 